Where's um? I'm just checking in on the. Yeah, just waiting for the guests. I emailed them. Let me just, guys. Again, this is the behind the scenes stuff that everyone loves. I'm gonna assume everyone loves, right, Leslie? Yes. Well, I'm not okay. They're, we're gonna give them a few minutes to sort it out, but we have made contact with our guests. Have you ever been to Bolivia, Leslie? Uh, no, I have not. Well, would you ever like to talk to people who have been to Bolivia? Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, well, let's ke- we'll keep talking not about Bolivia because you know what's going to happen. It's like we're going to have to time it perfectly and they may not be ready for a little bit, a few more seconds. And then my whole very professional, seamless vibe that I've cultivated over the years <laughs> will be destroyed. So when they give us a thumbs up, we can uh, we can talk to them. OK, they get both of them give the thumbs up. OK, ready. So very excited to be talking to two journalists. Ali Vargas and Camila Escalante, who are joining us live from Bolivia. Hello. Okay. One second. Look at that. The gov- the media, the mainstream media is trying to cut out. That's never happened before. Hold on. Stand by. That's suspicious. Okay. Confirmation. They have frozen on their end. Okay. CIA got them. No, don't even joke about that. You guys know what happened in Bolivia? I mean, you were going to get a rundown from them. But basically, spoiler alert, is that there was an illegal coup launched by literal fascists. And then they had democratic elections. And while the fascists were in power, the U.S. didn't have anything to say about it. But when the right wingers were replaced by democratically elected leaders, all of a sudden, it's a crisis. The State Department had a lot to say about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right, let's see if this works. Ready? Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, please visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll get great bonus content, including an alternate podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. And with that, please enjoy the show. Hello. Yay. Welcome. Hi. How are you? Hey. hey. Sorry about the little internet problem. We're, we're, we're good now. Oh, good. Don't Great. worry about it. Awesome. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us again, Katie. Of course. I think it's my third time. Wow. Yeah, yeah we're going to have Camila on alone so she feels, so she's caught up, doesn't feel. <laughs> yeah. We'll do a third, though. Um, this is Leslie Lee. Uh, I don't remember Hello. if you guys co-hosted together. I mean, we're on the show no, together. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. Um, so welcome and just, I guess, tell us what, uh, thank you for all the work that you do, first of all. And can you tell us what is happening in Bolivia and on a scale from one to 10, how similar is the reality presented by, um, the Washington Post to the reality happening on the ground in Bolivia? Yeah, I think there's, uh, been a number of developments over the past few weeks, uh, consisting around sort of some of the senior figures of the last government, which came in through a military coup, and many of those people now um, being arrested, some of those people being arrested, and so there's been a narrative that's taken hold in media, particularly in the United States, uh, outlets like the Washington Post, 
um, talking about this is that this is persecution that these people you know there were legitimate officials and now they're being persecuted they're being thrown in jail and this is a deterioration of democratic norms and creeping authoritarianism that sort of thing the sort of you know the similar phrases uh, words vocabulary used again in a number of other cases uh, in countries that are considered official enemies of, of the United States but I think what hasn't been you know platformed and what we try to show the world is the other side of the story the other voices that you know gen tend to be ignored in the mainstream media and that is the voices of the people who are victim who were victims of the officials, the former officials who've now been arrested. Because these people aren't being arrested for their political ideology or for their views, for thought crimes. They're being arrested for a very concrete set of charges relating to acts that they carried out in government, which include massacres, massacres of innocent protesters, which includes uh, very serious corruption, COVID-related corruption, includes things like taking out an illegitimate IMF loan in an illegal manner by the you know in legal terms. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to present the voices and I think in a couple of days we're gonna have actually a, a, a video report, a mini documentary where we talk to um, some of those victims in the city of Cochabamba, people who you know ordinary people who were jailed, uh, you know, thrown away and uh, had the key thrown away. And no one, no one has thought to ask them what they think about what's going on, whether they think this is political persecution uh, compared to what they lived through, the ways that they were persecuted. So it's, it's, it's an interesting moment, you know, it's an interesting moment. We're going to see a lot more of the kind of talk of, oh, uh, this is vengeance, this is authoritarianism, democracy is dying in Latin America because of these sorts of people, that, you know, vengeful people who just want to look up their opponents. Um, yeah, we just want to try and show the other side. So they're basically, I mean, they're trying to make it look like there's this rogue uh, um, vigilante justice when actually what they're doing is that they are um, like subjecting people to the law. Like people yeah. who are oversaw massacres. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's certainly, I mean, you know, they, especially in the mainstream media, they say the current mass government is carrying out a campaign of revenge against the last government. But the issue of justice, it's not about revenge. The reason you implement justice, punishments, is so that something doesn't happen again. So if there's impunity for this, for these violations that Camilla's been right. outlining, then what's to stop it happening next year? You know, if if there, however, if there is some form of justice, if you know, carrying out a coup, um, you know, stealing large amounts of money through corruption schemes, carrying out serious human rights violations, if those things are seen to have a punishment, then you reduce the chances of those things happening again. So that's why you know, the basic idea of, of justice of, of punishment as a form of um, justice. And it's what people are calling for. And, you know, all of these, like, big institutions would be the Washington Post or, uh, you know, the Catholic Church in Bolivia, the call for the release of Helena Agnes who carried out these crimes. Well, when did they ever call for the release 
of the hundreds and hundreds of people that were jailed and persecuted for political reasons last year. No right. one ever spoke for those people. And um, even within among the people who were persecuted in Bolivia last year, there's, there's a sort of inequality and an injustice. And senior figures of Evo Morales' government, for example, who were persecuted, they were persecuted and, and they suffered greatly. But, you know, once the mass government returns, then, you know, maybe they can get a job in government, maybe. And they can, you know, be seen as a, a hero who sacrificed a great deal by, you know, throughout the country. But what about the hundreds of just ordinary people who came out to protest and were injured, were jailed? Um, you know, no, no one hears their voices. No, no one thinks about them. They won't get, you know, a, a cushy job at the end of it. They're, they're essentially forgotten about so I think that's what we're trying to do, especially with this uh, video report that Camilla especially has been working on, um, is to try and like show the human side of the statistics of what happened in Bolivia. In Bolivia, there was a coup carried out by the military and right-wing forces within the country with the support of the United States. And as a consequence of that coup, there was... Uh, a very serious campaign of political persecution. There were massacres carried out, torture on a mass scale. Hundreds, you know, hundreds of people's lives were destroyed. Um, and I think the world should know about this. And it's not the place of the US government to say that these crimes should be forgotten about, should stay in impunity. Right. And so just so everyone knows, like this is a, a coup government that was then defeated dur legally during the elections. And this woman, Anyez, who is uh, now in jail, was, you may remember her, she had a huge Bible that she was holding, mm. very famous for that image. She had a lot of racist things to say about indigenous people in Bolivia. Yeah. And we can actually look, a report was released um, by the State Department, which is interesting because as Pasechon News tweeted, you are co-founder of that, Camila, and Ali, you are, you're both co-founders? We are co-founders. All right, great. Anyone else? Just the two of you? Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. I guess well, they're... We, yeah. We're sort of a unit within a radio station. Right. A radio station called Zanil Kapsachukoka. And this is... So we're, the build, we're in this little office. is ours. And the rest of the building is the radio. So awesome. It's just yeah. us in this, but parts so this is, I'm just going to show the, the tweet. And this is, again, this is the U.S. State Department has released this 2020 report on human rights practices for Bolivia. Its own report cites human rights abuses, including extrajudicial killings by the, the Janine Anya's regime, as well as heavy reliance on torture. Has Secretary Blinken read his own report? I mean, this comes in the context of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, posting an official to communicate condemning the Bolivian government, the current Bolivian government, or carrying out so-called political persecution against the former authorities, Hernin Añez, as I said earlier, who was installed through a military coup, who carried out massacres, human rights violations. He said that bringing justice against those people is persecution. He said the U.S. state, you know, is concerned about uh, how democracy is being eroded in Bolivia. Yeah, that's the Right. Sweet. We are so, deeply concerned um, by growing signs of anti-democratic behavior and politicization of the legal system in Bolivia. The Bolivian government should release detained former officials pending an independent and transparent inquiry into human rights and due process concerns. Yeah. So comparing that to, to what we're about to hear. Yeah. So down the thread, we highlight um, that one. 
Exactly. In their very third paragraph, they say that these significant human rights issues do in fact um, exist. And um, where this, uh, you know, this in this beginning section, it does say that uh, Luis Arce was democratically elected in the elections that were held on October 18th. Uh, but it doesn't actually mention that, you know, Luis Arce was in government for a month and a half for the entire year and that the year was, you know, characterized by a military coup uh, regime led by Jean Añez, who stole power, um, interrupting a 13-year um, democratically elected government, of, you know, headed by Evo Morales. It doesn't say that. Um, and so it's kind of bizarre, like I mentioned to you earlier, it's like, it kind of seems like they're unaware of the timeline um, of, you know, of which things took place in Bolivia. And it kind of seems like the person or the people who compiled this report were unaware of some of the, you know, details and don't have a lot of background information on Bolivia. But yeah, it says, you know, obviously torture is the first thing that they list there. And so um, in the first section, respect for integrity of the person, including freedom from uh, arbitrary deprivation of life and other unlawful or politically motivated killings. It says that there were no reports of the government or its agents committed arbitrarily or unlawful killings during the year. But if you actually read the, the body of this first section, it actually details some of the things uh, that they that they learned from the reports that were conducted here on the ground by the International the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the um, Office of the High Commissioner of the United Nations, um, and of course, other organizations. Uh, most importantly, the Ombudsman's Office here in Bolivia, specifically the, you know, the National Ombudsman's Office, as well as the local ones, who detailed all the different human rights violations. And those, of course, were, for the most part, blazed over in this report. It does mention Nelson Cox, who is the Defensoria, the Ombudsman of the Department of Cochabamba, where we are now. And you know, makes uh, does cite some of the reporting he did, but he is the ombudsman. It just uh, names him as a representative, as if it doesn't, you know, have any, um, you know, as if this isn't some important official here in Bolivia. Um, so he detailed the torture um, experienced by uh, nine people who were arrested here in this region of the country, this rural area of Cochabamba, um, and so it does. Um, obviously, in that first section, you know, cites the uh, Inter-American uh, Commission on Human Rights, uh, who characterized uh, what took place as extrajudicial killings. Um, and, but, of course, that is in contradiction with the very first line of the section, which says no uh, reports that, uh, you know, such arbitrary or unlawful killings were committed. Uh, so, of course, it's already a little bit um, of a, what is it, a multiple personality disorder right. type report. Uh, so then, like, down a little further down on torture is where it begins to get more explicit. But not is it, only which, is it Sorry, is it, I just want to make sure I'm on the right one. This is, um, is this in the, the March, is this the, the screenshots that start with 2020 country reports on human rights practices? It says C. It's still like the first section, but then yeah. torture and other cruel and cute. Yeah, got it. Okay, yep, yeah. we're there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the, it says that um, there were no reports that the government officials employed 
you know, torture, coercion, physical and emotional violence. But then it cites multiple examples in the following paragraphs of where it was employed. Like I said before, in the first, in this first paragraph, it talks about Nelson Cox, the um, ombudsman of the Department of Cochabamba, who reported on the blows to lower extremities, to backs, to ribs of people who were detained by police here in Cochabamba. In the second paragraph, it talks about NGOs reporting that police relied heavily on torture. And then it says that the most common forms of torture for detainees included rape, gang rape by guards, sensory deprivation, use of improvised tear gas chambers and tasers, asphyxiation, verbal abuse and threats to violence. That's exactly what's in the tweet there. So you can find that. And this is just to clarify, this is what is was alleged about the coup government. That's right. Um, something interesting, I think Camila said at the beginning, was that this is the report was about last year as a whole. And they cited the current government at the end of last year was the elected government of the left of Luis Arce. But of course, Luis Arce took power in November of 2020. The vast majority of that year is, of course, the Agnes regime. So that's, that's the, you know, they detailed the torture, the human rights violations that took place under the Agnes government. Right. Yet when the new democratically elected government tries to bring justice for these clearly stated crimes, and go, oh, that's, that's authoritarian, you're cracking down the opposition. I think Reuters, you know, used to like, oh, this is the opposition crackdown, the crackdown on critics, blah, blah, blah. Justice is not persecution, you know, where there has been clear crimes committed. There should be justice, and I think that's, that's democratic as well. Right. Yeah, I also um, think it's a little bizarre, you know, how the report was written, because we're talking about a year in which there were two different governments uh, follow, following a year where there was a whole different government. So there's three potential governments that this report could be written about. And in the first section, it uses the word interim. And then later on, in another section, it uses the word transitional government. But in other sections, it doesn't refer whatsoever to who the government was, whether it was the government of Luis Arce, whether they're referring to the previous government in 2019 up until November of Evan Morales, or whether it's this interim or transitional government. So, you know, they're kind of attributing these crimes to no one when they do cite the, uh, the human rights abuses that were written out by these various uh, human rights organizations and NGOs. It's not attributed to the government in power um, in any way. That's obviously very bizarre. And wouldn't it be the case if this was a report being written about President Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela? Right. So further down, it talks about arbitrary arrest or detention. And it says, um, you know, it says the government didn't always respect the law. It's kind of just lukewarm on it. But as Ali was saying, uh, the report we're working on, which we hope to release um, in the coming days, is interviewing those political prisoners of the coup regime who were persecuted politically and jailed based on completely false accusations. And because they are not celebrities, because they're not government officials or you know important leaders of the movement towards socialism, there wasn't any international outcry. We didn't have Christina Fernandez and Alberto Fernandez and uh, Christina Fernandez Kitchener in Argentina calling for you know their release. We don't have anyone offering them asylum because they are just working class people in the Zona Sud of Cochabamba. So we spoke to them, heard their stories, and they themselves expressed you know 
not only did they experience torture, but they and their families were extorted. They were extorted for money. And these are people who literally have to go out to work every single day to make the bare amount of money to survive on a regular day. Then they were in prison. This is the men, the, the males of the households, of course. And we're talking about working class people who largely, because of where they live and you know their family setup, their income comes from largely the father who goes out to work. And if this person is jailed, they have absolutely few means to make money. So when they were inside the jails and being tortured by the police and the guards and you know possibly state official, other state officials, they were being told that Evo Morales was giving them money for their defense. And they told me they have never in their lives had a conversation with Evo Morales. Evo doesn't know who I am. How would I have a conversation with him? And they said, Evo is funding you guys, so give us the money that Evo is sending you. And this is going, this is coinciding with torture, and they're going to the families and saying the same things. They're, ex they're extorting the families for unreasonable amount of money for the wife and kids to be able to go visit them. Of course, during COVID, when there's a lockdown, and there are already uh, just unreasonable um, restrictions to people going outside, and people from their neighborhood where they live are already being criminalized and having confrontations with the police. And so these sorts of stories are not included in this report. And when they uh, you know, lengthen this report in a few months, it also will not be um, you know, included. It talks about denial of a fair public trial, trial procedures. Obviously, there was no due process in any of these cases. And these people have remaining charges. Um, it's very difficult because one month after Luis Arce was sworn into office, they were released, but they were given house arrest, so they were not able to go back to work and make money. They weren't able to step outside, and they continue to have those charges, and so it's very difficult for them to live regular lives, not to, you know, not to mention the, the economic toll, the toll on, on the lives of family members, and this is, of course, I'm talking about the Zona Sur of Cochabamba, but we've heard from the press conferences of the Victims Association of the Massacres of Sankata and Sakaba. They've said the same things, where in some of these cases, we have people who uh, their fathers, their brothers, their husbands were killed. There are other cases where people were shot and injured and didn't die, but they're obviously not able to work when most people's work requires them to be able to at least lift a box or be able to walk. So those people's lives are completely destroyed. We've uh, Some of our colleagues here that work in Spanish and Quechua have interviewed people um, and some of the jobs that they've had to do now that they have a gunshot wound to their chest or arm is things that make absolutely no money at all, less than $3 a day, which is not enough even in Bolivia, uh, doing things like selling candy. Um, and then also, uh, you know, going back to political prisoners, it was not just in Caracara or the two massacres where people were rounded up by the dozens or hundreds, but in other areas of the country as well. And we're not hearing a lot about those. We won't be getting any international coverage because those people, of course, didn't die, but their lives were destroyed. Right. This was a very, I don't, I don't think that the State Department def, uh, condemned this when this happened with um, Patricia Arce. You guys want to set this up? What happened to her when, what, right before, yeah. right after the coup? Was this it is um, before the coup? Right before, yeah. Um, because before the coup, there are a number of right-wing protests in the big cities um, of Bolivia, demanding, you know, the resignation of Evo Morales. And it was presented, again, in outlets like the New York Times or the Washington Post as, you know, citizens' uprisings, 
actually there were you know, really violent protests by middle and upper class sections of the big cities. And at one of these protests, they attacked this woman, who's a local mayor uh, for the mass, um, an elected official. They dragged her out of her offices, uh, kidnapped her, tortured her, told her that they were walking her to her death. Um, and at the, at, till now, there's, there's still no justice for that. And she's one of the people now who's, who's, you know, trying to explain that arresting Agnes is not about political persecution. It's about justice for the numerous crimes that happened. And this was just one of them. And I don't remember the U.S. government or any uh, human rights. Uh, I don't remember, like, the Washington Post or New York Times focusing on this issue. That was this attack. So, yeah, that's just an example of the type of behavior that um, happened that did not get very condemned by the same media and government officials in the United States who are upset about the fact that the woman who came to power, who represented this side of the political spectrum, right? She came to power. There were more, there were massacres. And now that she's being um, punished for them, now the U.S. is worried about uh, the, you know, disintegration of democracy. Yeah, and in this report, the State Department report that was released on March 30th, they also uh, just pass up on the opportunity to describe the situation and exactly what it is, you know, politically. And they say at the very end, they mentioned that Patricia Arce, a mass-affiliated mayor uh, who was assaulted by a crowd of men. That's all they say. They don't describe who exactly did that or that it was politically motivated, even though that's essentially what, you know, at least one third, if not more, of the report is supposed to be about. So, you know, this is just one example of the many people who experienced uh, persecution and violence before the coup even took place, uh, before the coup year, people's homes were burned. Uh, you know, it talks about the right to, to participate in the political process. Well, people were sent into exile because their families were being attacked. It was no longer a question of whether or not someone else could personally withstand the attacks and the persecution and the smears in the right-wing private media. It was the fact that people had to protect their elderly parents and their adult children or whoever else was being, uh, you know, swept up into this when your house is on fire. Can you talk a little bit about how this media represented the elections when they happened? And, um, you know, the Washington Post claimed it was uh, misrepresented it. Then it kind of corrected itself and then it misrepresented it again. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think you talk about media, I think I like split up into two, that being Bolivian media, mainstream media and Western mainstream media. Um, and the way that newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post normally get a lot of their Latin America reporting is often um, by you know through dispatches from senior right-wing journalists in those countries, and you know people in the United States don't necessarily know those journalists, um, but they're presented as oh you know on the ground that right. Bolivian or oh, you know Venezuelan reporter has told us that's how this news is gathered in these sort of, uh, U.S. you know U.K. outlets. And so I think the example of the Washington Post is uh, important because they recently published an editorial, this wasn't an opinion piece, an editorial, saying that you know what's taking place in Bolivia is political persecution, and they heavily cite uh, a 
guy called Raul Peñaranda, who's a senior right-wing journalist in the country. He's founder of a newspaper called Pagina Siete, which is the most right-wing outlet in, in the country. Uh, this is an outlet that when the massacres happened in November 2019, last year in Bolivia, they just uh, they said, oh, crossfire between protesters and the police has resulted in some people, you know, dying. That's how they framed it. It's a crossfire. The protesters came armed, and so, you know, the police did what they had to do. Those are the people they look to for dispatches, for reports, information, and those are the people that then fill, you know, the columns of uh, newspapers in, in the United States. So the information that gets delivered to the United States comes from a very, very specific class of, you know, of, of society, of journalists, of political journalists. So, you know, everything is seen through that filter. That's what we're trying to, you know, build an alternative to. But, yeah, you're absolutely right that, you know, the, you know, the Washington Post is a newspaper that last year published a study proving that there was no electoral fraud committed under Eva Morales in 2019, but which in their editorial a few weeks ago said, well, you know, there was no coup. Eva Morales committed electoral fraud and people protested and that was that. You know, so they, they manage the information in the way that, you know, is convenient and which pleases them. But I think the fact that it wasn't editorial saying this is, is incredibly serious. It's, it's, it's a position, it's a view, right. it's an opinion. Um, and that's an opinion that's distributed and read around the United States. And for many people, it'll be the first thing they, they know or read about Bolivia, and in which is presented as, you know, the current democratically elected government is presented as some sort of banana republic, tin pot dictatorship that's, you know, just jailing any its, its opponents on the basis of sort of grudges um, without giving any other context. And this, you know, when the cycle of information goes, you know, the line of information goes, as I explained, upper-class writing journalists in said country sends dispatch to the United States. That's presented as factual news. In that process, of course, the voices of ordinary people who were tortured, jailed, massacred, those are the voices that will never get through. Right. And that is the way that you collect the information. So, um, you know, I hope people can be aware of that when they read stories about Latin America in uh, mainstream newspapers uh, of the United States and mainstream media outlets of the United States. And also remember that being an actual, what do they say, like actual um, Venezuelan or actual Bolivian or actual Cuban, yeah. like there's not a monolith. There's uh, just like there isn't in this country, right? Like there are people have politics yeah. and uh, especially I when... That. No. Yeah. I remember that, I think, when Juan Guaido first declared himself president of Venezuela, there was like a viral hashtag on Twitter saying, hashtag ask Venezuela. Right. You know, and the point was like, oh, you know, you think you're so left wing, but have you actually asked a Venezuelan? Right. You know? um, of course, the question is, which Venezuelan? Exactly, right, right. Ask yourself which Venezuelan or ask them, ask people saying ask a Venezuelan which Venezuelan. Um, yeah. here, here you are contrasting the way um, the Washington Post described um uh, according to Washington Post, this is not what a coup looks like. This is, in fact, constitutionally prescribed. And here's the image, right? This is from November 2019. Bolivian police refused to obey, obey orders of the elected government and march in the streets alongside fascist paramilitary groups. So this is your democratic 
um, constitutionally protected, very nice Christo fascist, um, you know, demonstration, uh, peaceful demonstration by police. Here yes. they are again. Nice weapons. This one doesn't have, it's like been removed or something. Um, oh, it did. Uh, I'll and, be yeah. Yeah, you are. Why is that happening? I mean, why is that? But you have some interesting <laughs> images of, um, of Anya's, which is, uh, there's a quite a bit of a discrepancy between what's being said. Uh, this is where she's being held. Yeah. Okay. I think that's perfectly comfortable. Yeah. Not, probably not the palace she's used to. Um, I hope they let her, do, do they let her keep her Bible with her? It's so big though. If she's really, <laughs> she aren't, now she's claiming that she's on a hunger strike, right? But that's also... She, she did for a bit, but I think, yeah. They, yeah. But then there, you see pictures of her eating french fries and stuff. <laughs> right? I think you... Well, yeah. I then mean, they said she, it was avocado. She, I mean, she, uh, you know, she has visits. They try to present this as, you know, this is a poor woman that's been jailed. She is having her rights violated. I think the, the point that's been made by a lot of people is that she is enjoying the rights that she denied to the people that she jailed. She has the right to food, to shelter, to, you know, not be tortured, to, you know, maintain her physical integrity. But That's she has many more rights than any prisoner in the, uh, or pre-trial detention detainee has ever had in the history of Bolivia. And this is exactly what the political prisoners of her regime have told us. They told us that when they were arrested and in the months that followed, in the year that followed, there was no Catholic church. There was no Episcopal conference. There was no European Union. Right. There was no Luis Almagro and the OAS. Nobody came to speak to them. But not only that, the leftist media, the alternative grassroots media was afraid to go out and do their jobs because of the, you know, because of the environment here in the country and all the difficulties and all the tension, but largely also because of the attacks by Arturo Murillo, the interior minister. So people weren't even, the Defensoria, the Ombudsman's Office, and human rights organizations were not even getting to them. So, I mean, it's quite the contrast between the two cases, between the way in which Agnes and the small handful of people who have only now been uh, put in pre-trial detention four months after the uh, Luis Arce government came to power, during which... Uh, the two most important ministers of her of her regime were able to escape to the United States. And unfortunately, it seems like they won't be held to justice. This is um, just absolutely terrible uh, that we allow these people to leave in November. Um, and so it's just, it's unbelievable that it, it, it's, it's been made to be so difficult to make the case that, you know, that these human rights violations took place during this period. Also, I mean, it's, you know, Ali, you were kind of saying that this has a, a deterrent effect. But the other thing is, like, beyond that, I mean, if there's one place where, like, symbolic justice matters, it does matter at this level, right? If you want to condemn these human rights violations and you want to respect rule of law, I mean, I, I guess I'm saying this because I don't usually believe in incarceration. But when you're talking about incredibly powerful person who jailed, who herself had people jailed, oversaw massacres, it's very appropriate. Yeah, of course. It's, if, 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 if there was no justice, how, how would you feel if you had your life destroyed 
and then things just go on as normal. Right, yeah. The UK is great. The, the, the masses return to government. It's democracy again in the country. That's brilliant. But what about what happened to me? You know, that's... Right, yeah. It's worthless. Yeah. What we went through has meant nothing to anyone, that means. The only reason why this, this process only began four months into Luis Arce's administration because people demanded it and they right. continued to clamor for justice. But As they should, that, yeah. This process wouldn't have begun at all, just like in the case of Venezuela. And it's not like, as you're saying, it's not like there was a rush to, ju- they weren't like dragged from their homes and shot. They were uh, no. given rights that yeah, they I mean, denied. The, the, the story of how Anya's was actually captured is quite interesting because um, they went to her home in the city, the city of Trinidad where she lives and she wasn't there. You know, there was like 20, 30 police surrounding her home. She wasn't there. And uh, people started thinking, she's escaped. She's gone. And because the city she's from is actually quite near the border with Brazil. So everyone's thinking, that's it, she's, she's fled, escaped justice. Um, that's, what we, you know, even, that's what I assumed as well at the time. But after a number of hours, I think at like two or three in the morning, um, they announced that they had captured her and that she was at her friend's house in the same city and she was hiding in one of those, you know one of those like lift up beds where you can have storage underneath? Yeah. She was hiding in one of those. And then um, and that's where she's found. I think I was actually asleep when she was there. The wheel was awake. I was I was on like twenty-four <laughs> hour watch waiting for it to happen. So I literally did not sleep that night or the next day, just watching her getting transported around, trying to figure out what was going to happen. But of course it happened on a Saturday night, so there was less press than there would normally be. Unfortunately, we were in, you know, different parts of Cochabamba. But so you couldn't celebrate it. together. That's the action, but I mean, it happened at one in the morning. Had it it taken any longer, I would have attempted to fly to Benny myself. (laughs) Yeah, here's there's some pictures of her. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. With Liza, you have any questions? Yeah, I so like it is kind of wild that as soon as the Biden administration takes over, they are taking these stands and they don't have to be accountable for the fact that this woman is like a christian fascists right that they're trying to like like there's no accountability for like what we like there's no they're just basically using the same playbook that they would use with any country whatsoever it's like oh the current government we don't like them so they're anti-democracy never mind the fascist coup and it just seems so brazen and just like because anybody who knows anything even casually follows this story knows that is bullshit, right? Like, so I, it, it just that, that brazenness from our own government to s- tell us one thing that we know it's not true. Yeah. I yeah. Think it's, it also shows that there's a con- continuation between the Trump yeah. policy, administration yeah. policy and the current one. I think specifically that statement by Anthony Blinken shows that nothing has changed between the Trump administration and the Biden administration on the question of Latin America. That Trump Almagro line has, has remained. And I should remind that actually that that Trump Almagro line represents a radicalization of what came before under the Obama administration. I, Obama certainly was uh, no friend of Latin America. He certainly intervened uh, you know, in a number of nefarious ways. But when Trump came to office, that radicalized in a really deep way. 
So, for example, the blockade, what began under Obama as economic sanctions on Venezuela, became a total blockade, dramatically worsening the situation, economic situation within Venezuela, as well as the, the slight, the small easing of the embargo on Cuba was then clamped down again. Sorry, I should say, under Obama, there was a slight easing of the sanctions on Cuba, and those were reapplied under Trump. Um, so there was a real radicalization of the attacks on Latin America by the Trump government. But the Biden government, I think, is showing every sign that it's, it's continuing that policy. It's a, you know, it's, it's a great shame. Yeah. And of course, Biden famously said, um, what was it? Um, I couldn't say it any clearer to, to Haiti. <laughs> Do not come. Oh, yeah. Like they made a social media thing out of it. Like they thought it was appropriate to make an image of that to put on Twitter. And here's, by the way, here's the Agnes with her big. This is actually one of her smaller Bibles. Right. <laughs> but she has a like a one that's like three times as big, I think, that she like that she yeah, carries when around. She first got into the presidential I mean, I got to say, what a girl boss, I have to say. I know, major girl boss. Even the color, right? Like pink. The girl boss. Yeah. So, yeah, well, um, any and what anything else that you want to tell people who are, you know, don't get to be exposed to this kind of media about um, uh, Biden's policies in Latin America, how how you whether you're surprised by the difference, by the continuation, um, whether it's a bigger difference than you thought. I mean, I know you were saying it's a continuation, but is there a difference? No, I mean, there's no difference. Like not only a continuation, a radicalization, it's an intensification, and there's no sign yet that uh, that they would in any way ease the blockade on Cuba. And that was, you know, obviously if he came, if he came from Obamaville, then uh, maybe he would subscribe to that. People, is what people were saying, you know, in the initial weeks um, of his administration, fat chance. Obviously, you know, the Cuban government and people have said that this feels like an intensification every day because not only are they living under a tightened blockade, but now under the coronavirus, uh, they've absolutely lost um, a lot of economic means because of the shutting down of the tourism industry and you know how difficult it's been uh, to get basic necessities into the country, basic food supplies, while also you know continuing to prevail over the blockade and. Um, innovate scientifically, medically, produce these four vaccine candidates or four and a half at this point. And uh, yeah, but obviously this is, this is a, they're going to have to continue to overcome the blockade just like Venezuela uh, through, through cooperation with allies like Iran, China, Russia, Bolivia, um, in the case of Venezuela, Turkey. And uh, but there, there's no sign that it'll be letting up, or that the that the policy will change in any way whatsoever. We will see an intensification. We are um, in the war against Nicaragua and its democratically elected government. Uh, the country holds elections later this year, and uh, you know the United States will do anything necessary in this case to prevent the Sandinista government from remaining in power. And they will be installing their version of a Juan Guaido. Um, if other uh, if their other tactics don't work out, yeah. And Chris, Christian Hernandez asks, "What can we do to help?" Well, I think even just discussing the issues 
um, in a way that goes against the going against the mainstream media portrayal of things, that in itself I think is enormously helpful because part of the way that the United States, uh, not just the United States, the European Union, the UK government, part of the reason that they feel they can intervene, you know, seize control of natural resources in, in countries in Latin America is partly because they think no, no one's going to talk about it, no one cares. And, you know, if people do talk about it, we can spin it in the right way so people accept it and see it as a good thing. So just putting those arguments and discussing these, these issues helps to break that down. So when you break down the narrative, the media discourse, then this, the hand of the state becomes a lot weaker. Absolutely, and that's exactly why the State Department and the CIA has invested in so many different programs to bring up young people and journalists mm. to try to counter, uh, you know, to counter this growing um, section of anti-imperialist truth-telling journalism that's taking place with outlets like Brazil Wire, uh, Brazil Wire, Venezuela Analysis, in the case of the U.S. Breakthrough News. And, you know, us, of course, and it's been very important. There are very few people, very, you know, under-resourced and work extremely hard. And we do things really just the DIY way in terms of everything we do. Everything takes longer. Everything is just crustier and it's done off of a phone without, like, great technology and without super video editors and stuff like that. But we're actually changing the story about what's going on on our continent in our countries, and they're trying to reverse that by putting more money into funding um, NGOs who will then go out and find these young people uh, to try to uh, fight back um, and continue to spread the U.S. State Department's message throughout the world. But we're actually, uh, in a lot of ways, winning the war, and Bolivia was a perfect example of how a lot of people went from not knowing very much at all about Bolivia to in a very short period of time learning, you know, what's going on here, the, the basics, and with that, connecting with, you know, connecting to what's going on in other countries and the way in which U.S. imperialism works and the way in which social movements here on the ground and the people come together to, uh, to, to combat uh, imperialism and, you know, neoliberals in their countries and protect their sovereignty. Yeah, and I think that is, is incredible, like, the... Kind of inequality in resources, I think, not just on the issue of imperialism in Latin America, this of course applies right across the world, you know, if you're in alternative media. But just this, uh, just yesterday, it was real that in Bolivia, a number of senior right wing journalists were receiving contracts for up to $4,000 for to write a single report taking 10 days. Uh, that was submitted to the regime about how to, you know, improve their image, improve their propaganda. The resources that are flowing in to, you know, to the narrative that we've been talking about, the narrative repeated by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, the resources going into that are enormous. Um, you know, there's foundations like the NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, funneling tens of thousands of dollars to tie, you know, small outlets to, you know, to launch this, you know, campaign of, you know, twisting, manipulating information, whereas those who, you know, do the opposite, you know, do it without you know, very, very little uh, material resources, but it's done through, you know, love and commitment to what you're doing. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's incredible, really. <laughs>
And people are asking who the president of Bolivia is. Do you, can you tell people something about Arce and his relationship to Evo? Uh, yeah, he was Evo's economic minister. Um, he's, he's called Luis Arce. President Luis Arce. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Luis uh, Lucho is his nickname. They call him Lucho here. Arce Catacora. Uh, he's a very good just manager, and that's, I mean, he managed the economy very well, and that led to, uh, you know, substantial growth. Yeah, he's, he, he speaks English. Um, he studied economics in the UK, actually. Um, and then he sort of came, he came back to Bolivia. Uh, and he set up this sort of Marxist economist sort of study circle called Los Duendes. And that's how Evan Morales heard of him when Evan was elected in 2005. And in 2005, they didn't have many people at that time who could, they didn't know what to do, like who to put, who to place in government. And everyone was like, oh, I heard about this guy who's into economics. Like, we should get him in to run the, <laughs> run the economy. And then out of that, they built uh, the Bolivian economic model, which is based on nationalizing natural resources, also strategic industries and manufacturing and transport, other stuff. Um, and then using the profits from those industries to then invest in infrastructure, and schools, hospitals, poverty reduction. Um, and that was the model drawn up by Luis Arce and Evo Morales. Luis Arce is the economy minister. And now he's, he's the president. And I think it's, it's just as well, because last year the economy completely collapsed under Henning Anders. She took out a $330 million IMF loan, uh, indebted the country to a huge degree. Unemployment tripled. The, you know, there was negative growth throughout the whole year. There was really just everything that had been built up over 14 years was completely destroyed. So now Luis Arce is back so rebuilding some of that model. That economic model under Evan Morales delivered the highest rate of economic growth in South America for a number, I think, five or six years before the, the coup. So it's a hugely successful model. Poverty was cut in half during that time under Evan Morales' government. So they're trying to rebuild that model. Um, just today, I mean, an example of what they're doing at the moment is that just today, there was actually Luis Arce officially reopened a state-owned glass factory that is in a town called Solanias in the center of the country. There's a huge factory that made glass bottles, glass for different things, and it was owned by the state. And they would sell the glass, and the profits of that go to the state, which then can be used on social programs. However, under the Anias government, they basically shut down most of these state industries. The factory gates were closed. So now they're reopening it, you know, boosting that, uh, that model. And I think the model is built because countries, uh, well, I think if you're building a post-neoliberal and anti-neoliberal economy, you can't just say that, oh, we're going to tax the rich and just sort of spread that money around. So that depends on a model of having a rich few and, you know, people at the bottom dependent on those on the taxes from those rich people. Um, and furthermore, in a country like Bolivia, where most people working in formal economy is very difficult to collect taxes. So that model of the, the primary revenue of the state should come from 
industries, profitable industries that are nationalized or created by the state and managed efficiently by the state. The, you know, the idea that that should be the primary uh, way for a government to earn money, I think is incredibly important. And it's the only way that Bolivia has been able to build roads, uh, reduce poverty, build schools, hospitals. You know, Bolivia before ever Morales was a country of dirt roads. And now there's, uh, there's top quality infrastructure connecting most of the country. That's something that transforms people's lives because it means that people can um, move out of uh, small rural villages, they can sell their goods uh, in larger cities, come back, bring that money to their communities. It means that you can transport medical supplies. Uh, it transforms the country. And it's only possible thanks to the nationalization of profitable industries and using those profits as, uh, as government revenue. And I also wanted to say that going back to who is Luis Arce, um, you know, a lot of people in the media, and this will continue to be like a line that's thrown into every mainstream uh, media uh, article, they're going to continue to say that Luis Arce is someone who was handpicked by Evo Morales and is someone who is a puppet of Evo Morales. But if you look at the people he has around him, he has a completely different set of people, a lot of whom are young all of whom are extremely uh, markedly progressive. And this is very important in a country in Latin America. In Latin America, across the political spectrum, it's extremely difficult to push for uh, a number of progressive issues, including LGBTQ rights, including feminism, including women's right to uh, free and safe uh, abortion provided by the public health system. a number of these issues are just very difficult in the most progressive of leftist governments, including in Venezuela, Nicaragua, El Salvador in the past, and in Cuba. There has been a lot of debate, and at the end of the day, the reason why you know these things are very slow to come is because the the working class, the the vast amount of people in the in the country, find it very difficult to support some of these uh, you know progressive laws. It's very difficult to entertain these conversations and discussions, and it has to come from young people. And this is a government under which those things can happen. This is extremely, uh, you know, it's it's very optimistic for people in this country who, um, you know, who, who have clamored for, you know, all sorts of, of of rights that you know wouldn't be possible in the past. Where we're able to have this discussion now. So in terms of being um, you know, continuing on the trajectory of uh, the Evo Morales government in terms of like the management of the economy, absolutely. But in terms of social issues, uh, there's a lot of potential under this government. Yeah, I think that's quite an interesting issue, the point that Camila raised actually, because it is quite hard to talk about things like uh, LGBT issues or feminism, you know, across the whole of Latin America, including on the left. I just was remind, I just remembered um, in Evo Morales' government, they put they passed a law that allowed trans people to change their gender on official documents on their citizens' ID. And um, when Evo Morales himself was asked about this in the media, he said it, it was other people that pushed this. To be honest, I don't really understand the issue. I haven't really heard. I've heard of the issue. It hasn't been a thing where I'm from in my sort of rural background, but, you know, other people made the argument for it, and I kind of thought about it, and I thought it was a good idea. 
I might not understand it fully, but and I think that's that's the sort of attitude that is, you know, most common on the Latin American left, especially the Latin American left that comes from the working class and isn't, you know, sort of university uh, middle class section. So it does need like certain people with the like will to push these things because it, it, it's not going to come naturally. Mm. And that's to the detriment of the people who are um, plotting in Washington. The, these uh, these NGOs and groups who just think that they can just come and you know abduct some young people and train them to you know go be fake feminists and fake environmentalists or you know liberal neoliberal environmentalists are going to be you know quite shocked when they figure out who the people are who are advising Luis Arce when they find out that the most important closest advisor to the president is one of the top feminists in this country. I mean, they're going to have nowhere to go with that to try to attack a leftist government by making arguments that leftists are machistas and whatever the hell else. Can you just tell us a little bit about that figure? Marielena Prada, she's a minister of the presidency. Yeah. And she she became a friend of Camilla and I was doing the campaign. She, she was actually Luis Arce's chief of staff when he was the economy minister. And, um, yeah, she's an incredibly important feminist in the country. And, yeah. Yeah, I mean, from the day she stepped into office, she's used her platform to talk about femicide and violence against women. Um, And the alarming rates here in Bolivia, just as alarming as the rates of femicide and violence against women in any country of Latin America. This is an issue that is embedded in our uh, leftist, socialist, communist Marxist, Leninist ideology, whatever people, uh, uh, however people define themselves within the movement towards socialism, but it's by no means something to be, to allow the, you know, the right wing and the liberal feminists to attempt to co-op when really all they're doing is standing alongside Carlos Mesa and those who would like to see the country subverted uh, to, you know, neoliberalism, which is inherently anti-woman, anti-working class, and against all of our rights as working people. Right, yeah, and there's a lot of that, right? There's this pretty, like, racist, like, oh, like, these people, they don't really know about this stuff. They, you know, care about economic issues, but they're, like, it's a very infantilizing view. Yeah, it's a process, these things. Yeah, but it's not like there's, it's not like it's perfect in, uh, you know, here. Like, look at the bills that they just passed, right? Uh, in Arkansas, so... It's like that Spaniard. I got to find that video of that Spaniard who was like talking about how like like the people of Bolivia, they're just like not intellectual. They don't understand things. Oh, yeah. They don't have the capacity for sort of yeah. sports. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, Somehow they I mean, it is, like, it, is a com- it is a very complicated issue. Uh, I remember here once I interviewed uh, a female union leader, a local female union leader, and she's an incredibly strong woman. We spoke about the issues of, you know, femicide, violence against women, etc. Um, and her personal struggle to be allowed to participate in politics and stuff. And it was, it was incredibly inspiring. And then when I asked her about abortion, she said, well, no, no, I've, I've always been a Christian and I've never really thought about these things, but my instinct is that I'm against it. But you know, that was someone who's in the mass. Uh, but then there'll be other sections of the party, especially younger uh, women, who, who who do know, who do, you know, support LGBT issues, who do support uh, the liberalisation of 
abortion, for example. Um, I should add that there was advances under Morales on these issues. He instituted a law in which women on lower incomes, uh, women in, who are studying, and a number of other cases, you're allowed to have an abortion legally. Um, but there isn't yet a total legalization. But it's something that lots of people within the government uh, are pushing for, certainly. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, any final words? And tell people where we can... Um find out uh, more about your work. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter at Kazafra News, Kazafra News on Facebook. We now have a TikTok, which uh, we literally just started. So, but do follow us there. Our TikTok will be specifically geared to our domestic national audience here. It's 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 like in Spanish, but yeah. But it'll be, but it's it's good for everyone. Uh, we, We have like a lot of like cool little things that aren't so newsy, so that's why we created that uh, recently. Um, like we'll, cultural things, music, dance stuff. And it's fun. It's fun. Yeah, we also have our YouTube. Um, we're you know a little bit slow to upload some of our work. Sometimes they get tweeted. Sometimes they get put on YouTube. But we're going to be a little more consistent going forward. Um, one thing that we've been covering here. Um, both, you know, for concession news, but also for um, the radio here in Spanish and Quechua. We obviously don't report in Quechua, but we've been covering the uh, the municipal subnational elections, which is going to a second round on April 11th. And um, it's just really important because, um, you know, we really need to destroy the narrative that the mass has lost support when it actually gained uh, municipalities in this election. And it won three of the five elections that were won in the first round on the governor on the, on the departmental level. So we'll be chasing those uh, those elections this coming week. We're also following Ecuador's second round of the presidential election. Peru's um, election, Chile's yeah. election, or sorry, your election. Yeah, but Ecuador's election is obviously really important to us and to the region. Um, you know, it's following you know the same kind of. Uh, template that they tried to use in Bolivia to try to get rid of the leftist candidate. They still haven't been able to uh, to, to get um, Arauz out of the race, and we have about a week and a half left remaining for that election. And so Arauz is leading, and Andres Arauz, who is the leftist candidate representing the Citizens' Revolution, uh, former President Rafael Correa, who, who governed for uh, 10 years of lifting Ecuador, uh, through, you know, uh, socialistic policies um, is running in first place according to all of the polls, but there have been significant efforts to try to uh, to try to get him out of the race, including uh, through uh, foreign meddling with the cooperation of the Colombian uh, Attorney General to try to criminalize Andres Arauz and link him to uh, to to uh, guerrilla groups um, and try to say that he's getting financing uh, from, you know, the ELN. And so obviously completely baseless. They've also, you know, they tried to use a third candidate to get him out of the race. That failed. Um, and so it's going to be a really important election to keep our eyes on. Fortunately, uh, you know, Telesor and Kazashua News are not the only uh, outlets covering this this time. We have a lot of other great people, um, Progressive International will be sending um, some um, election observers. And uh, so, yeah, we'll be following that. Awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I want to stress that the, the upcoming elections in Ecuador are incredibly important and we will be covering that. Uh, we both used to work in Ecuador, actually, that's where we met. Um, and it's incredibly important because we could see the return of a left-wing government there. And that would add to the wave that has been in the past year of left-wing governments returning in Bolivia, in Argentina, um, left-wing government being elected in Mexico a couple of years ago. And it would show that the right-wing turn that happened a few years ago was a historical accident. And, the, you know, to paraphrase Martin Luther King, you know, the arc of humanity is tending towards progress. I think that would be incredibly uh, interesting because I remember a few years ago, edit, you know, editorials and, you know, liberal newspapers in the United States talking about how oh, the left-wing governments of Latin America have, have lost steam, have lost momentum, mm -hmm. people have turned against it. I think what we're going to see in Ecuador and the rest of the region is that that moment a few years ago was a historical accident, a historical blip. And um, the path to development, to equality, is actually one much more rooted in reality. Well, thank you guys so much. Uh, oh, any narratives they should look out for in any elections? So, like, the narrative is what? That the left is weakening? Uh, anything we should prepare to push back on? There's so many narratives if we're, if we're talking about the Ecuadorian presidential election. I mean, we have the, we have the losing third place candidate literally trying to tell us that, um, we're, the we're, we're judge. uh, Yaku Perez, who was the third place candidate in Ecuador's first round of the presidential election, which was held on February 7th. The second round will be this coming April 11th. So it's the Sunday after next. He's trying to say that if there was a recount conducted uh, or another election, that Andres Arauz, that one with flying colors, would be in, would not have come in first. I mean, he's really just trying to rewrite what took place. Um, you know, there's, they're trying to say that because Andres Arauz uh, received 30 something percent of the total valid votes during the first round, rather than declaring him the winner, because he won by a million votes uh, compared to the, the runner-up. They're trying to count, the, you know, the headline is how many people voted against him. They're saying yeah. that if all of the candidates and all of the parties and coalitions came together, that equals more than the votes that Andres Arauz and Arabascal received together. This is a bizarre headline. That's a really annoying narrative. They do that all the time. If someone wins with like 40%, 60% voted against them. Yeah, it's like they did with Bernie, remember, Leslie? Yeah. When they were like, he's not doing as well against Buttigieg, Biden, Warren, uh, who else was in there at that point, as he was against Hillary, as he was last time. It's like, right, when he was running against one person. Yeah, and I mean... When there are two people in the race. Just yeah, say smaller percentage. Uh, in this case, Yaku Perez got 19% of the vote, right. then we can say, well, 80% of the country rejects you then. Right, yeah. Right. yeah. It's, it's such an annoying, like... <laughs> the international community needs to know that people who have followed Bolivia and have followed recent events in Latin America can now decipher, you all, we all, our audience, everyone can decipher and see, see these elections, what's taking place or what it is. And people are able to see what's taking place in Ecuador without being fooled by the big private media in their own countries and internationally. People know exactly what's happening. And it's important for people to know that Guillermo Lasso, the millionaire banker who has you know, tax havens, offshore accounts, and 
owns uh, millions of dollars in properties in Florida under all sorts of shell companies uh, and who was, you know, responsible for destroying people's lives through the feriado bancario uh, in Ecuador, which, uh, well, anyways, but like, this is a very unpopular candidate. He lost in the previous election, this is his third time running for president, and he's going to lose again. There's absolutely no poll except the polls that his allies fund that have shown anything different. So this is a very uh, difficult situation for them because they have this neoliberal candidate who has tried to, in recent weeks, present himself as an environmentalist, as a social democrat, even though everybody knows he's a very strong right-wing figure in the country. Um, you know, all of a sudden he cares about women's rights, all of a sudden he's wearing different clothes in, you know, promos trying to pretend to be down with the kids. Um, it's just very bizarre. So there's absolutely no chance that they could uh, that they could win in a, in a transparent um, and fair election that isn't rigged. But unfortunately, there have been attempts by the electoral authorities, you know, handpicked by the Lenin Moreno regime themselves to try to rig these elections. So it's very important that we closely monitor these elections as reporters, as the international community, um, you know, as Latin Americans, etc. This is, like Ali said, a very important election for the left and for our entire continent. I'm very excited to bring on End Classless Society, as she's known on Twitter. She's an organizer. She is an anti-imperialist feminist uh, labor organizer, and she's with Twink Rev, a uh, very good uh, Marxist LGBTQ magazine. Esperanza, welcome. Thank Hi, you, how are you? Uh, so much for having me on. I'm good. I uh, also just want to say I'm also with the anti-imperialist feminist organization Affirm, Affirm uh, which right. I always try to rep when I can. It's A-F-I-3? A-F-3-I-R-M. A-F-3-I-R-M. I-R-M, a transnational feminist organization. Cool. I wanted to have you on uh, to talk about lots of different things. And it was a kind of perfect, it was a perfect segue because one of the things that um, Camila and Ali mentioned, I don't know if you saw this part, but she mentioned, he mentioned it's a difficult, you know, it's a complicated issue of like social justice and, and economic justice. And he mentioned this uh, uh, very strong woman, like with a strong personality who believes in women's rights. And then he brought up abortion and she was like, oh, no, no. And it is a kind of I think there's like an uncomfortable discussion that people don't know how to have. I'm not even comfortable formulating the question. Like, how do we talk about it? So like Evo Morales, for instance, he said some something about how like there were more gay men because chicken I don't know if you remember this, but like years ago, he was like, oh, I think that we're seeing more gay men because there are more hormones in the chicken. And that's not like a take that I subscribe to, but I think he's great. And so like, how how can we look at these things through that intersectional lens um, in a real way, not the way that people just throw around that word? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the first thing that I want to say is uh, all of us are, you know, complicated people. We're not all going to be right all the time. Um, those of us even who are mostly right are still going to be wrong, you know, a lot of the time. Um, you know, I, I also think that, uh, this sort of shows the importance of 
a proletarian party that is committed to ending all exploitation, uh, being the one to democratically set the political line on different issues. That way it's not sort of just left up to any one individual that can let their own subjective bias or other errors uh, get in the way. Um, you know, but I, I do think that uh, in terms of like Evo Morales and, you know, the question of socialism, class and social justice, um, you know, the, the reason why uh, proletarian or working class consciousness is so important is because in order for the proletariat to liberate itself, it has to do away with all exploitation and oppression in society. Um, and so that's why traditionally you've seen uh, socialists, uh, communists that have been the most progressive on mostly all of the social issues. And do you want to uh, talk also about um, Affirm and what kind of like, what is this orientation that you're talking about where where class proletariat for people who who, you know, I think people in the audience, there's a range of people. Lots of people know what that word means. Lots of people don't. Lots of people have like some idea. But can you give kind of an overview so that everyone's on the same page? Yeah, absolutely. So when I say proletariat, I mean working class. I mean, those of us who have nothing to sell, but our labor power. So unlike, you know, the Jeff Bezos and, you know, the people who maybe own business, um, we sell our labor every day for a wage. And that's what makes us, you know, proletarian. Now, in terms of a firm, um, we've been around since I believe 1989, um, so a couple years before I was born, uh, and we are an anti-imperialist feminist organization. So initially, we started out as a solidarity network for the uh, struggle in the Philippines, um, but we then sort of moved uh, into addressing the issues here in the U.S., um, as well as with our chapters in Hawaii and Puerto Rico. And, and so for us, right, opposing imperialism means opposing uh, U.S. intervention, uh, militarization projects, but also opposing the sexual exploitation of women that always comes along uh, with imperial projects. Um, one of the biggest things that we're working on right now are decriminalizing people in the sex trade, um, while also calling out uh, the violence and exploitation that happens in it, um, and therefore, you know, figuring out how we can both uh, decriminalize people who do it to survive, uh, while also ensuring that the market doesn't expand, um, and thus the coercion and uh, violence inherent to it. And what are you working on? now with the Twink Rev, which is great. I love, big fan of Twink Rev. We are actually about to do a rebranding. As you know, you know, we started out sort of as a podcast with Sam and Gian, and then it turned into a magazine. Um, and then we started growing. Uh, so I think right now we're in the process of rebranding and we're going to be launching a new website, a new name, um, where we're hoping to, you know, entertain a lot of critical pieces um, and, you know, some debates uh, within the international left right now. And what makes you like a, a communist, not a socialist? Because a lot of people are, are socialists. Some of us are from mixed families. Can you talk about what being a communist means today and what the relationship is between communists and socialists? Because I'm from a, a family where that split was big and very divisive. And then today people are like, uh, are you kidding? Like as if like either one has any power 
And what is to be done about this? Like, are we fellow, tra- are there fellow travelers or who are our allies? You know, where does that begin and et cetera? Really easy, concrete questions I've just thrown at you. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually, I think this question is so important, especially now when socialism is becoming increasingly popular in the U.S. Um, but I think it's really important to define these terms. So, you know, traditionally, um, when you look at it, uh, socialism is sort of the first stage of communism. Communism is a classless society. Um, so it's a society that does not have class domination. It is free of capitalist exploitation, which what that means is, you know, every day we go to work, let's say eight hours uh, of the day, um, we're producing like hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands and thousands of dollars for the company, but they take all that money from us. So in reality, we're maybe only working two or so hours for ourselves and the rest of it, we're working for free for the boss, for the capitalist. Um, so a communist society would do away with that, right? Um, would do away with uh, commodity production, which is producing something for its you for its exchange value or how much it can be traded for on the market and instead producing to meet people's needs right um so i would say it's a much more sensible rational um way of organizing society uh that meets our needs and not simply the needs of a minority now socialism is the transitionary phase to communism um because those of us who are not anarchists we don't you know believe that we could just sort of smash the state and do away with capitalist exploitation overnight, we need to have a sort of scientific approach to this um, that allows us to understand how we actually reach a society that has done away with exploitation um, and oppression. I thought you said depression. You said oppression, but those are related too. That's a whole... Oh, yeah. I mean, our society today produces all sorts of, you know, uh, problems with mental health. Um, not to say that there aren't some that are like based in biology or chemical imbalances, but if we're being honest, I mean, capitalist society, it alienates us, it isolates us, gaslights us on a major scale, like we're seeing right now under Biden. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. What are your thoughts, by the way, on Trans Day of Visibility? And how that fits into kind of organizing and how it fits into the progress um, and also new challenges, right? And now it's easy to just stand in solidarity and Biden will say the right thing, right? And then also, like he has said that he would, you know, not sign any uh, any Medicare for all bill, that he veto any Medicare for all bill, right? That passed his desk. So like, I guess the danger, the double-edged sword of progress and also the, the danger of the weaponization of identity politics to not just take bad positions, but ironically take bad positions that are bad for the very populations and very groups and communities that, that one is claiming to champion. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, maybe some people uh, maybe resonate with the visibility message because they think that, you know, trans people have sort of been, um, you know, like hidden or, you know, obscured in society. Uh, And so I understand why they do that. However, I think that visibility is um, a sort of easy cop out for politicians, for companies um, to maybe highlight us, uh, 
you know, put us in a, as like sort of tokens in their advertisements. Uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, for example, saying that she wants to read the name of murdered trans women on the White House. Um, despite the fact that the U.S. war machine is killing trans women like Jennifer Lauda and other women overseas um, here at home, and she had no plans to put an end to that. Uh, you know, Biden having, uh, you know, pronouns in his name uh, on, on one of these shows or like advertisements that he had uh, allowing trans people in the military, but but not addressing the sort of deeper roots of trans violence and of trans oppression. And I think that it's easy for people in Hollywood, like that movie Disclosure on Netflix, um, to argue for more representation and more visibility. Um, but it's based on this flawed theory that the more visible we are, that's somehow going to change our material conditions. And that's simply not true. Uh, what's going to change our material conditions is if we uh, join hands with other uh, struggling and oppressed people, like uh, workers, like Black and Indigenous communities, uh, oppressed women, um, and we form a movement together that makes real demands of the state uh, while also planning to go beyond it, I think that's how we change our material conditions, not simply asking for visibility in the media or a gender neutral potato head. We got some great questions by on Twitter, by the way, and in the chat. There was actually an interesting one that I that was a little bit pushback, um, very respectful pushback from uh, I took a screenshot of it. It was about visibility. Sansa Carioca said, I respectfully disagree. As a lesbian, visibility works upon phobia, trans homophobias. It's not mutually exclusive with the devastating effect of neoliberalism. It's important, isn't it? Yeah. So my response to that would be to say there is an element um, of visibility that is important, right? Um, for example, uh, you know, being able to uh, see people that look like you, that, you know, have the same identities as you. I mean, there is something uh, validating and affirming about that, especially for LGBT youth. But at the same time, there is a limit that's built into visibility, that's built into representation, um, things that representation and visibility alone cannot do. Um, and I think at that point, that's where we need to say visibility representation is so easy for, you know, corporations and capitalist politicians to co-opt, that we need to move beyond visibility uh, to demand real changes and improvements to our material conditions. So it's like a, it's, it's necessary, but insufficient. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, with trans women, we've been visible for years. The problem is we've been visible either one through, uh, you know, fetishizing, objectifying pornography, or uh, as the pun of a joke, you know, in movies or comedies. Um, but again, visibility isn't going to give you healthcare. Visibility isn't going to put you in a house, right? Visibility uh, isn't going to stop you from being forced into the sex trade and unable to leave it. So you're saying that socialism is this transition between what we have now and capitalism. So, but you were also involved as an organizer for Bernie, right? You're a fellow, if I may say, we're all, everyone here, we're all Bernie bros. So what is the role of electoral politics in all of this? Yeah, yeah. So I have to actually be honest about my role with the Bernie campaign. Uh -oh. And I've, I've never actually... <laughs> I might break your heart. Oh so don't gosh. be upset. Right. But I have to be my, true to myself and my principles. So uh, I've been a labor organizer for maybe a little under 10 years now. And I 
never was really into electoral politics, right? Um, I, I thought it was just sort of a waste of time. But uh, when the Bernie campaign came up, you know, I think most people know me because I sort of came out with this letter about my experience in the sex trade. And uh, I'm a survivor of that, was just sort of exiting it, uh, trying to find, you know, stability. And my friend had organized me into the Bernie campaign because this was a man who was talking about, you know, universal health care, um, canceling all student debt, et cetera. And being an organizer, I wanted to lend my skills to a movement that I thought could really do something. Um, but after experiencing what it was like to have the primaries, uh, you know, be an entirely sort of unfair uh, process, even though it was supposedly not rigged this time, um, you can't tell me that all of the other candidates dropping out to right. uh, surround Biden was not a form of rigging uh, the primaries, right? Um, I also think that, you know, we were told to vote for sort of the lesser of two evils. Um, now all this footage is coming out of immigrants uh, in just, I don't even know the word to describe it, just horrible conditions. Um, sleeping on the dirt under a bridge with a foil blanket uh, on top of each other, treated like like animals, like cattle. I mean, this uh, this is fascistic, right? And this is what we were told the Republicans were going to bring. Right. And yet you have sort of even progressive Democrats uh, in Congress who were supposed to fight this who are manufacturing consent for it, uh, calling critiques of Biden privileged, saying, oh, oh yeah. well, you know, tokenizing and exploiting the oppression of black and brown people to silence critiques of Biden and Pelosi. Um, so, you know, I feel now that, uh, you know, we should engage in, I guess, what you could call like legal struggle. We should push for reforms that help people, that make their lives better. Uh, but at the same time, I think that running candidates in the Democratic Party for office every four years or every two years is a losing battle. I think it's a huge waste of resources. And I think that what we need to be doing is making a party of our own that's beholden to workers' interests and not the interests of big capital. And the Democratic Party is never not going to be beholden to big capital. And so I think that engaging in democratic electoral politics is a dead end that wastes time and resources and alienates people from struggle. Oh, so you you kind of have, like, that was a formative, deformative um, experience for you. So you, that shifted you. Yeah, you know, that did shift me. And, and I think it's important uh, because if we are committed to advancing the interests of our people, of the exploited, oppressed masses of people in this country and around the world, then we have to be willing to approach struggle scientifically. And that means not holding on to something because it feels good to us. It means evaluating it and saying, did this work or did this not work? And after years and years of struggling within the Democratic Party, we can safely say this does not work. This was not made for us. And this is not going to allow us to use it. And we have to come up with something different. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you are the most persuasive person because no one can come at me with that if they weren't at one point Bernie allies, because that just goes in one ear and out the other. But I hear what you're well, saying. 
Are you familiar with Paul Engler? Don't think so. So he's, uh, you know, written a few books on organizing. Um, his his brother is a, you know, union director at Unite Here Local 11. I, I used to work under him. Um, but Paul Engler, when, you know, Bernie lost the primary, he said, uh, Bernie, you have this giant base, this this structure that you were using to push your campaign forward. What you need to do at this moment is turn that electoral structure into an infrastructure that could be used to push a mass movement forward, to hold Biden accountable to his promises and to advance demands of the working class. And Bernie didn't do that. Yeah, he used his so texting much. list to raise money for organizations, but the movement he built fell apart. So I think at some point we again have to realize like this isn't working and we need to build real power and real power is not getting behind politicians that once they're elected are going to move right every year, right? Real power is building our own organizations beholden to the working class that we can actually exercise power over people that we put in those positions. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman, and our intern is Maria Trujillo. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. 